you know, one thing I worry about this is that we can kind of readapt things so much that we can take ourselves away from our our decision on things and our reality with things. Yeah. And I think that could become dangerous. Okay. Do you still know what I'm saying? I do. Something could be so fragmented in all sorts of ways that to be capable of confusing the individual in the middle of it. Yes. And that could be a very confusing state for somebody who is wanting to make advance. Yes. There must be a growth in the knowledge of what you are. With this inquiry, the growth in the understanding of what in fact I am grows naturally. So as the confusions and the incongruity and the mix-up in the mental and emotional realm is cleansed, there is a growing understanding in the being of what I truly am. So that is a very important part of it, of the whole process of the cleansing and the practicing of the virtues. That naturally arises. And you mustn't be afraid of that. Do you know, that is a very, a very natural developmental process. And it may be unknown, but it's very important to overstep the fear of that unknown and allow that growth to take place. Are we happy to, to leave it there this evening? Well, thank you very much. Very enjoyable. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming. Philosophy and Virtue. And the extra little title is that quotation that from virtue comes wealth and every other good. And I hope that as the evening progresses, we can have a look at that. From virtue comes wealth and every other good. It's a very challenging statement isn't it? Most of us probably think off the cuff that, you know, you get wealth by some short circuits or a little bit of skullduggery for here or there. And yet this statement stands there that from virtue comes wealth and every other good. So I think that's a very challenging statement. Hopefully that will come to light a little more as we progress through the evening. So philosophy and virtue... As we know, philosophy is the love, study, and pursuit of wisdom. And wisdom is one of the virtues, said to be the highest virtue. So we simply could be discussing and studying virtue. And I think it would be the virtuous man who would be the philosophical man. Plato equates wisdom with true thought and a knowing of God. So, 
the highest virtue is wisdom, and this is equated with true thought and the knowing of God. So clearly this is a possibility through the virtues of leading man to wisdom and to the, the knowing of God, which is not a light task to, to undertake. It's said to bring harmony to the soul. Plato describes it as the one true coin for which all things ought to be exchanged the one true coin for which all things ought to be exchanged. A little different from the flight into gold that we see in the marketplace today where people are willing to sell everything and anything and rush into gold. But this is a coin obviously higher than gold. Wisdom, the highest of the virtues and this knowing of God. It is said that virtue facilitates the communion of the soul with the unchanging. Here we have a, just a number of descriptions of virtue just to set the scene for us. Virtue is said to purge the soul from error and assists its conversion from darkness to light. purging the soul from error, purging the being from error. So we may find some of the virtues challenging in that regard. So let's just see again how that challenge for you and I arises in following the virtues, in our aim to follow a virtue. I would propose to you that the virtues may be acquired and hopefully also we'll have a look at the possibility of taking on, practicing a virtue. I think it may be developed and we may be able to habitualize them so that they would actually work automatically for us. So that perhaps when we're in a very, very difficult situation, you know, the tax man has met you and he's gone through your books and he sees there are certain discrepancies and it's a question of do you tell the truth or do you tell a lie? And I hope we could habituate the practice of the virtue of speaking the truth rather than the expediency of the moment, which may be very pressing. <laughs> so, the general body of virtues have this ability of being acquired and of being habituated, brought into our regular pattern and habit of behavior. The highest virtue, just to mention wisdom, is of another realm. Because wisdom is never the same. 
Plato says wisdom is of God. How could we see that? I think we can see that, that wisdom arises in the moment, we might say. It's hard to habituate it because it will have different nuances, a different elements of a decision or different elements in its makeup at every moment to meet that situation. So in a way it's said that wisdom, the highest of the virtues, can't be habituated because it has that very nature of, of just being of the moment. So I would propose to you that these virtues are in a way, another word we could use is their knowledge. They give us a knowledge of how to live so that we live truthfully, honestly, uprightly, courageously, generously, rather than the opposite. So in a way they give us a set of guidelines and knowledge by which we can live our lives. So we can call it a, a measure for life. We always know when we've had enough to eat, but invariably the apple pie, in my case, is just too nice and you have another slice. <laughs> and that has its consequences, doesn't it? You feel a little heavy and a bit sleepy, and etc. A very small matter. But just to say that we do know the right measure, because we know we've overstepped it. And I think virtues, contentment with sufficiency, I think we know these measures, and so they are a knowledge and a guidance for our everyday life. Back at the ranch is where most of our lives we do spend in this world of duality, as we call it. I'm here and you're there. And there's lots of people all around, so there's lots of us. So we live in this world of, of duality. And while we live there, then for every good there's a bad, and for every virtue there's a vice. And so we live in this world of virtue and vice. So we could say, as we have, that virtue is a knowledge, and so vice is an ignorance. Very strong words, vice and, and ignorance. Not that easy, in a way, to bring into this somewhat idealistic concept of virtue being godlike or leading us towards God, and its opposite, vice, being ignorance and ignoring of this goodness. So they're, in a way, quite challenging words for us to... They weren't easy for me to actually get down on paper, because it can give you a little bit of a, a startle. So this vice is a, an ignorance or a want... Plato describes it as a want of knowledge, a lack, a lacking.
of knowledge, a lacking of knowing what is good, what is right. But this lack of knowledge, of course, implies a desire for knowledge. If you're in want of food, you desire a meal. If you're in want of knowledge, you really need knowledge, you desire knowledge. So this want of knowledge implies, again, that this knowledge can be acquired, that these virtues may be attained. And I think this is all very positive for us, that this knowledge may be attained, may be practiced and habituated. Plato spends a lot of time discussing whether virtue can be taught or not. I propose that virtue can be taught, it can be acquired, and I hope we can all partake in that in some way. It might just be a little helpful to look for a moment at the virtuous life, at the vicious life, and what are the effects of living life under these two opposing principles, if you like. I think the virtuous life is a very natural life for man, natural in that his true nature is to be free. And man living in the presence and working with the virtues, I think appeals, appeals to the nature of man in that it gives him freedom, it gives him an independence, a virtuous character appears open and willing to listen, willing to support, willing to help. The virtuous characters are somewhat respected in society remembered, and I think in our own way very often there are qualities that we notice in people, perhaps it's in a teacher or a neighbor or a friend, and we tend to recognize these good qualities and emulate them. So I think there's a natural attractiveness towards the virtues for us. It's interesting, isn't it, that when somebody dies, we quite easily forget many of the shortcomings that may have pestered us while they were alive. But what we remember as a lasting memory of them is their strengths, as we would call them, their virtuous qualities, whatever it be, endurance, honesty, courageousness, whatever these qualities are. The brilliance of Shakespeare is that he turned that around, didn't he? With that famous scene where Mark Antony was speaking about Julius Caesar, where he says, the evil that men do lives on, and the good is oft interred in their bones. So he's turned everything that I'm saying on its head, <laughs> but... I think that was for his own purposes at the time. I think if you read the obituary columns at the moment, you'll see the good qualities of somebody spoken about. Well, and what are the effects of a vicious life? 
isolation, a meanness, a dishonesty, leading to fear. insecurity, lack of contentment, continuous agitation in the being, unbalanced behavior, anger, slightest thing upsetting the being. In a way, familiar enough qualities at times. Perhaps little coherence between our thoughts, words and deeds. So that reliability of the being saying what it thinks and doing what it says, that reliability isn't there. So we may say something and do something else. A lack of courtesy, a lack of self-control, all this leading to this smallness in life, tightness and a continual disappointment in life, continuously being unfulfilled. That horrible photograph sprang to my mind when I I considered this vicious life, that horrible photograph of Saddam Hussein being found in this hole in the ground almost blinded by the light, of course he'd been hiding in darkness, filthy, unshaven, obviously alone, totally alone. I think the remembrance of that vision is enough to turn any of us uh, (laughs) away from a vicious aspect of our being, of our character, when it's remembered. coming back to the virtues. The virtue of our age is said to be to give. Interestingly enough, da is the root. There's a, a little root of this word, da, to give. It's very lovely. We may hear a little baby. One of the first consonants and sounds it makes is da, da-da. But this root, da, is to give. And I think As a nation, we're tremendous givers. So we have a lot to be proud of in this regard. We can go through the list. We top the leaderboard, don't we, in terms of giving to charities, Chernobyl, various disasters, to Africa. And then we bring that into our tourism, Cade Mila Falcha, this sense of a great generosity in the people. We have a great history, a great tradition of giving. So this virtue of our age is not unknown to us at all. When I was originally asked to speak a little bit on the topic, I felt uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of issues around the word virtue that don't sit easy in the psyche. And just to mention a few of them, there is that sense that a virtuous person is a goody-goody. And, you know, who wants to be a goody-goody? Like nobody. 
So that sense of virtue and and always being teacher's pet, you know, that's just not on, really. There's something about that we need ourselves to look at so that we shake that one off. Another one is, can you picture the virtuous person being the life and soul of the party? (laughs) (laughs) They don't sit together, do they? There's something erroneous about it, because obviously to be virtuous is very good. But there's something too in us that doesn't sit well with these sort of concepts. Goody, goody. There's also, I think, the idea that sometimes we might suffer due to our virtuous behavior. Like if you're in front of a tax man and you have to speak the truth, you might you might feel you're going to suffer, or your bank account will suffer. So there are these testing moments, aren't there, in virtue? And then there are the current sort of behaviour that we might frown on as a society, but that definitely goes on, which we might call as unvirtuous, as vicious behavior, but in its own way, seen in its own circle, is virtuous. Like, how many pints can you hold tonight? It could be seen as virtuous to hold ten pints. Where the truth of the matter is, you're wrecking the body. You're poisoning it. So we can actually have ideas that turn the whole thing around, turn what is really wrong into something great. How much income you can withhold from the taxman may be seen as very clever, quite virtuous in its own way. But are we being truthful or untruthful? There's a lot of questions about this virtue, aren't there? Where do we begin? I think we will propose that there is only one place where we can begin to consider and to develop and magnify these virtues. And is it with the government? Is it with my neighbor? Or is it with me? It's a challenging issue. We may be interested in the benefits of virtue, but not particularly interested in following virtue. So there's a little issue that we may find in our own thinking. To be generous is a lovely idea. (laughs) And I'd love to be a generous person. But if you don't mind, I'll keep my hands in my pockets on this occasion. So we may very much like the idea of virtue and being virtuous, but just not quite willing to make that step ourselves.
How is virtue, wealth and pleasure to be reconciled in our lives? Plato and all the writers on the subject are in agreement that it is from virtue that wealth and pleasure come. There's this epic of Indian literature called the Mahabharata. I don't know if any of you have come across it. A small section in it is the Gita, which is the most popular portion of this entire epic, the Bhagavad Gita. In the course of this epic, there's this character, Yudhishthira. He's the king, really, of this group of people, and said to be the epitome of virtue. And he asks Bhishma about wealth and pleasure. And the reply comes as follows. When men in this world endeavor with good hearts to achieve wealth with the aid of virtue, then these three, virtue, wealth and pleasure, may be seen to coexist in union When men in this world endeavour with good hearts to achieve wealth with the aid of virtue, then these three, virtue, wealth and pleasure, may be seen to coexist. And he continues saying, wealth has its root in virtue and pleasure is the fruit of wealth. For all objects exist for the gratification of the desire for enjoyment. So everything is there in this creation for our enjoyment. The pleasure that we derive from them is derived due to the wealth. And the wealth has its root in virtue. The highest aim, of course, is freedom, is complete freedom. I think that's why, in a way, we don't like that goody-goody idea. Because there's something limited about just being a goody-goody, isn't there? But to be free completely is totally appealing. Free from both good and bad good and evil. This freedom is expressed in the justice system particularly, where this abstraction from objects of the creation is needed. Abstraction from the objects of creation is needed for freedom, so that there is nothing in the creation which binds us, which holds us to which we're magnetized. And so that freedom is available. The judges in our courts need to be free to give a clear judgment. And so we find any case that they may have an involvement in, 
or a direct interest in or any members of their family are involved in a case, they don't preside. They withdraw, don't they? Just like a doctor never operates on his own family. They withdraw. So this attraction, this attachment of family or of personal interest doesn't interfere. So they withdraw from these cases to be free, to remain free from the attachment. So the aim of all this work is for us to attain this freedom from the objects of creation. Just in passing, Bhishma, this gentleman speaking, gives us two further phrases. This lovely word, dross, he speaks of the dross of virtue and the dross of wealth. And the dross is that which, if, if you boil a metal, if you heat a metal, the dirt off the metal and the impurities which rise to the top is called the dross. And so you skim it off in order to have the pure metal. So the dross, that impurity which arises from wealth, is the desire to hoard it, to hold on to it. And the dross that arises, that lifts off virtue, is the one for reward, is the desire for reward. Since I'm virtuous, I should get something. So these are the covers on it. The covers on virtue is this desire for reward. There have been occasions when it's appropriate to give. Da, to give. Going to a party and you bring a gift, you give. Uh, or you're going to a birthday and you bring a present and you give. And occasionally they're just given, free. But occasionally you... Do you know she didn't thank me? <laughs> it's the last time she's getting a present. <laughs> Familiar enough. Looking for that little reward, however slight it be, this dross, this cover on the virtue. And obviously to truly give is to give totally free of any concern about a reward. Socrates again, speaks to us, doesn't he, about the unexamined life. He says the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think to look at our lives and to attempt to bring some virtues and to grow the virtues in our lives, I think we must examine our life. We must look and become somewhat familiar with the patterns of our own thinking, of our own behavior, be willing to look at those and examine them in order to see are they virtuous or, or not, or can they be improved. And the question may be asked, to what extent are we in charge of our own destiny? Are we willing to be responsible for our own state. 
Are we willing to be responsible for our own happiness and for our own misery? We may like to ask ourselves, or we may not, but the question may be that why do we at times suffer? I'm sure we're all agreed that we're all in search of happiness. So why do we suffer? It may be obvious to say that happiness is the outcome of harmony, harmony within us. So pain and suffering would be the effect of a disharmony within us. A pain or a suffering has the purpose, has it not, of waking us up to do something about it. Very often you'd have a a small pain in in the tooth and you'd gradually, you know, I have a little toothache. And then it comes to a point where the pain rises and I'd better do something about this. And I suggest that's what pain is about. It's a disharmony within, be it physical or psychological, which needs attention in order to restore the harmony or the purity to it. So I think there is a a need for us to watch, watch over our behavior, our thoughts, our feelings, examine what is happening, what circumstances produce happiness for us, and what produces pain. We may find that we are continually aiming at what we see as good and virtuous, and yet we're continually being frustrated in achieving that aim. So what is coming in between? Because from virtue comes good, and from vice comes not good. However, the circumstances of our psyche can be quite complicated and our thought processes deep, deeply rooted, our thought and emotional processes deep, and we vary greatly in what we require for happiness as individuals. And so I don't think it's possible for us to judge another. There's another anomaly. We may find what appears to be vicious people, unvirtuous behavior, and yet they appear to be very happy and successful, wealthy, if you like, whereas somebody a very virtuous person that we might see, appears miserable.
But I think we all must accept that within the virtuous and the vicious, there's this play in the psyche. And all we can say, I think, is that the good produces happiness and the not good produces misery. So it's not really possible for us, I would propose, to judge another. May I put on the board a list of some virtues so that we can have a look at these? enough for the moment, is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the list does go on. And we could put against these some of the vices. Fearlessness, fearful, yes. Contentment, discontent. Forgiveness, Holding a grievance. Absence of anger, simply being angry. Harmlessness, cruel. Generosity, being mean. Any of these familiar? (laughs) Fairly familiar. Yes. So how are we to grow in any of these? What would you suggest? Practice it. Yeah, practice it. How would you like practicing fearlessness, for example? When would you have an opportunity to practice fearlessness? When you are fearful. Very good. That's the only moment when that one would come into play. It's when you've observed within fear arising. And fear can arise for many reasons. Fear of the consequences, fear of the unknowing, stepping into the dark. So it's only when you see the fear that you can step over it. That little story, which book it's in, I'm not sure, but there was this enormous monster that was in the distance and no one would leave the village. And one little girl was willing to go out So they opened the gate of the village, or opened the gate of the walls of the city, and let her out. The minute she stepped out, she looked and wasn't too sure, but she stepped a few steps and then took another look. And she noticed the closer she was getting to this monster, the smaller and smaller 
he was becoming. Now it's for us to discover that when faced with fearfulness. That it's possible that this fear, the object of fear, disappears as you look it in the eye, as you come closer to it. Similarly, obviously, anger. You know, the only time you can address letting go or absence of anger is when anger arises. All of this is for us to test. I mean, I was very afraid coming here to give this talk. While I'm in my room preparing this talk, you know, preparing the words, if you like, to speak, or some of them, to give me some form of structure, I reach moments of desperation. I come here and stand in front of a group of people and that has fallen away completely. So this fear is an interesting thing. If we take the list of virtues and to the right of that we have the vices, direct opposites, but should virtue be in the middle? If we think of fearlessness as being the ideal, fearful is... Not quite the opposite, but the absence of fearlessness, and on the other side, recklessness. Indeed. In the same way as, say, contentment, the apathy, contentment, and discontent. Very good. It's reaching this mean. Right. That is the virtue. Okay, I don't know what we call the other column. Yes, another one. <laughs> what would we call the other column? But I get your point all right in that it's neither excess one way or the other. Yes. Yes. This is the list that's given to us as the virtues. As I described earlier, as the true expression of our human nature. You know, that which leads to happiness in man. And I've just given the opposites as what we, I think, very often are challenged by. We find anger arising, one moment we've lost it, and the next moment we're apologizing because I'm sorry I lost it there. So we know in our heart of hearts that it's, it's not appropriate. And yet, in a flash, like striking a match, you see it's, it's overtaken the being. So, this absence of anger, as another example, is a, is a challenge for us all. And ultimately, it's about awareness. I think this is the key. I think it's about us becoming aware of what is happening in our psyche, which is unique. I mean, there are patterns, but it is unique. And seeing how that, where that leads, is it leading to happiness or to misery? Can it be cleansed? If it's misery, obviously it's painful. And pain, as we say, needs some attention in order to 
right it, to bring it back to harmony. So if it's painful, how can we purify it? The question keeps arising in my mind, how in fact can we grow in the virtues? What have we to do? It's been suggested, practice them. I think what we could do is take down the list, write it in the diary, and practice one. When you read the list, for you, one of them might be appealing. You know, sometimes you read a list of words and just quality of one of them stands out for you. You know, it could be harmlessness or a constancy or modesty or to be content. Very often in the being, you might spot a discontent. Why? No particular reason is evident. You could write it in your diary. You could leave it on your desk. Leave a word written beside the telephone at the kettle. Maybe work on one for six months, a year. Imagine if you worked on five of these in five years' time, what sort of a person you'd be if you were fearless, content, forgiving, no anger, and harmless. I think we would all be quite different beings, and that's just five years. Would you like to stop there and have a cup of tea? And we'll come back and have another look a little further at this, if that's all right with you. Great, very good. Thank you. you. If I may just bring us back together again. It's easy for us to recognize the virtues and indeed their opposites. And perhaps interesting to acknowledge, we recognize them because they are within us. So, anything arise for you to say or for us to consider with regards to these virtues? You finished off the first section and you talked about living in duality and I just didn't quite understand what you meant by that. Yes. Well, we live in this world of twos, so that there is a choice for us between living virtuously or behaving virtuously, as we would see it, or behaving viciously. So that's the choice, really. And I think we have this choice between good and bad, right and wrong, all the time. So that's what I mean by duality. Is that okay? Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much for a very engaging and informative presentation. I suppose my question is, the virtue theory as you have presented it, the platonic version of it, like, how does it deal with somebody, like, we'll say, who's a psychopath, who doesn't have the freedom to live virtuously because the freedom they experience would seem to be very little and that they're always kind of drawn back into their way of thinking. Mm. Or we'll say, how does the virtuous theory, as you've presented it, deal with somebody who is not 
intellectual, you know, we'll say that they are, without any fault on their part, brain damaged or deficient in the operation of their brain functions? Or how does this theory explain the very common experience of people who don't wish to be virtuous, who are happy in their, uh, what you would describe as vicious living? So, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I think it is up to you to choose. What I think is being proposed here is that this is for those of us who see, who are willing to inquire, who are willing to observe our behavior and want to improve it. So this is just for those of us who want to improve our situation. So we have a chance to observe, see what's happening, and through that observation and through some knowledge, which I believe to be innate, which we all have, but we may need connection with it through conversation, through an evening such as this, perhaps through some study, consideration, even taking a word, whichever one it is, contentment. What does that mean? So look it up in the dictionary. Inquire into the word so that there's a, an information store available to you. And that, coupled with observing your own behavior, there's an opportunity to begin to change our behavior. And so it is for those of us who want to do that. Can I start off by saying I'm aware myself, looking at the chart, as to what it is that, that I need in my life? Good. Are you willing to share that with us? Well, it's peace and contentment. Yes. Yeah, very good. The question that I have for you is in reference to, to right and wrong, good and bad. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the topic itself, if you can manage to do that. Yes. I think we see good and bad as to really what our underlying desire is. So this is a very good evening because it's very good to meet with people and discuss this topic. I love it. So it's, it's a good evening. If I was to arrive and there was nobody here, it would be a bad evening. So it's as simple as that, isn't it? I think we tend to see things as good that fulfill our desires and things as bad that go against our desires. Now, it may be our desires that are wrong that we may have to look at. You know, it may be our desire for a particular outcome is not correct. But that's how we tend to judge things, as good or bad. We all judge what you call a free will or whatever you want to call it. And that's yeah. how we operate in this creation. Basically, what I was looking for is really to define right and wrong. Right. That's feasible to do. Yeah. It's subjective, to. isn't it? To the individual. That's it's subjective to the individual. Now, there's the possibility that it may be reasonable and apply to reason. Well, then the right is the most reasonable thing to do. And that may correspond with what we're talking of as natural, natural law. Very often we don't operate in a totally reasonable manner. So the, the one below that is our opinions and our likes and our dislikes. 
And then it's either good or bad or right or wrong, depending on how we feel, how we think, uh, and what we want out of a situation. So we don't always act as a reasonable, rational human being. But I think the most rational behavior will correspond with what we might call a natural, a natural law. Yeah, well, can I just say on that, the other side of the equation is that there is no such thing as right and wrong. So now I'm just posing the question to you. Well, I think you're right. How you think about it. The only person who can begin, I think, on this journey is you. The only person who can begin to observe what's happening and how you're seeing the world is you. And I do think this is for those of us who want to begin to make that step. That's the inquiry of philosophy. Thanks so much. No, very good. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Can you speak a wee bit on on contentment? Do you quantify (laughs) it as overall contentment, you know, happy in every aspect of your life? Well, Well, I wouldn't set the bar too high, particularly if you find most of the time you're discontent. So, all you can do is begin to observe what is this discontent. You may not find an answer. I found, for example, I was often discontent around half past seven at night. I just had an unease about me, fidgety. I wouldn't sit and read. I didn't want to watch the telly. I just fidgety, unease, discontent. Now, I just had to observe it, because what can you do? Just observe it, and there it is. I didn't find a particular reason for it, but I can say it has somewhat departed. So it may be that the odd little things that we discover in ourselves, simply seeing them and looking at them helps them to dissolve. And how wonderful. Why do we want to know everything that's wrong? We don't. We just want to know that now we're happier. That's the way forward. That now, I can honestly say, there's there's greater contentment there throughout the day. So it's interesting. That's all I can say. (laughs) And I wish you well. I wish everybody well. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You were speaking there about being reasonable, but what if we're finding in our lives others are unreasonable to us and acting in on an unacceptable way? Is there any way you could give us a wee bit of help with that this evening? Well, we're interested in freedom. And in that freedom is happiness. There's no question of that. It's not selfish, it is one of generosity and encompassment, really. But you do have to get through, if you like, the layers of dependency that we do have in life, like a child is dependent on its mother. But there comes a time when that dependency dissolves. And then there's simply respect 
and care of mother. So there is a time for a dependency. Employer-employee relationship is one of dependency. The employee is dependent on having the job. But there's rights and duties, there's responsibilities on both sides in that situation. Within a family, there's responsibilities of father, mother, sons and daughters. There's rights and, and duties. So they need to be respected. And with the understanding of the role, there comes a confidence in the part that you have to play in that relationship. And that has actually quite clear boundaries when it's known. And those boundaries then can be observed and respected. It's quite a long road in a way particularly if there's, you know, anxieties and concerns about bullying or one person over-influencing another. Outside of the natural relationship, that always causes difficulty. Or where an employer is leaning too much upon an employee and just giving them too much to do or giving them work that they're not trained for properly. All these issues arise in life. But we're going to have to grow as individuals in order to face them. Is there anything more I can help with? Well, more about when the level of unreasonableness would lead to fear, that the person is experiencing fear from another party. Yeah. Well, that has to be overcome. What happens to fear when you face it? Well, your awareness will move it to another level. Yes. As you face fear, it tends to diminish. For a lot of us, there's always something, isn't there, that we want to do. There's something that's needed in the garden or something's needed in that, and you keep putting it off. I won't bother now. No, I've, had enough, I've had enough today. And you put it off to tomorrow. You put it off. And it tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger, doesn't it, in your mindset? Until one day you just face it and it's done in a jiffy. And I had all that worry over this and now it's done. Well, fear is a bit like that. You've all this worry over it and you face it and it's gone. But you do have to realize that yourself. You can say to someone, you've got to face that. You're afraid of this person or that. You must say this to them. You can say that as long as you like, but until they actually realize it and do it. So you've got to have that inner strength that comes and then just do it. And each person has to discover that themselves. I have a daughter in an employment situation exactly like that. You can speak and you sit and chat about it and give her the advice. But I can't go in there and say it to her employer. She has to actually do it. So it's a real-life situation, and it's tricky, but there it is. Thank you. Thank you. On that we note, just what comes to mind is that we can't change other people. It's in changing ourselves that we overcome the difficulties. Very good. And that's lesson number one, isn't it? 
that I've got to see what's happening here and address that. That's where things can begin to change. Yes, very good. And just even the wee principles of being compassionate about the other person and at the same time being assertive. I had a a little incident myself recently that caused me a certain amount of concern and worry. And when I addressed it with the person, what struck me most about the whole experience, how everything dissolved in that instance, it was because I got an apology and the person explained their actions and separated their actions from anything to do with me. And it was just so illuminating that this was the right course of action for me to take in caring for the other person Mm. and thinking where they're coming from and being compassionate towards them. And yet it was the right thing to do to address the issue for them as much as for for you. Yes, quite. For their development. Very good. And it, it really always is. It nearly always is because you're both involved. It always is beneficial to both parties to resolve these sort of conflicts and difficulties. Because then both parties are freer, really. But it does take stepping up to the plate, and that can be a little difficult. But, you know, how long are we going to put up with the sore tooth before we take action? You've got to knock on the dentist's door. And this is just dealing with it in the mental and emotional realm, a toothache in the mental and emotional realm. I may just have to get a little more painful. But the key is to address it and to see it. And then, as it's seen, the response is easier. Yes, please. You said there about being in pain. Sometimes you have to be on your knees. You know the way they say an alcoholic is on their knees before they'll admit their problem. You know, we all have problems that we'd love to face. Can we bring that to some resolution quicker than being in that much pain? Well, one of the virtues is patience. So (laughs) there may be a number of them there that are very obvious. And the key is to see them, is to see it. And in a way, not to be impatient, but to be happy to observe it and see what the next step is. And it may be different to the last time. Is there any one of those there that meets anything for you? It comes back to, you know, if there's a bullying situation and you move from job to job, but I've heard of this, that bullying moves with you because obviously you haven't faced some of the... Maybe there's something not being faced by the person that is being bullied. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that may go on until you hear or you take advice or something will happen and you'll see the need to make that move forward, to overcome whatever the fear is or whatever it is that's causing it. It can easily be seen. It will be seen by that individual, what it is that's causing the bullying or what they're missing, what they're not facing. So it's observed. It's observed. It's definitely observed within. Mm -hmm. And having observed it then, well, then it's clear. It's in the daylight. It's known. 
So it's not to be ignored, but to move forward in whatever way that direction is needed. And if you don't want to observe, you're going to stay with it. It's going to still occur. It's not the wisest thing to do. The wisest thing to do is to see it and examine it. So the wiser thing to do, the thing that's likely to lead to greater freedom and happiness, and you've got to want those and not the misery or the attachment that keep you bound. So you've got to want happiness and freedom. And the wisest thing to do is to examine what's going on. And as you examine it, the next step is given to you, really. And so there's a bit of courage needed for that. No doubt about it. A bit of courage and faith, really, in the ability of man. And the goodness of man. Because most of these difficulties seem to arrive from what we see as viciousness, ungoodness. (laughs) Not a word to be used. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? Yes, please. It's just a thought that's come to me, and it's really for yourself personally. In your life, have you, under the ethos of philosophy, reached the point where you're content? (laughs) 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 Thank you. Yeah, I will, I will. There are definitely moments where contentment is not foremost. Where there's still anxiety creeps in. There are still moments of fear. Yes, there are still moments where fear definitely hits you. But things have progressed over the years. There's no question about that. Yes, absolutely. And there's no doubt about it. This would not have happened without the study of philosophy And I found meditation to be very helpful and supportive of all of that. And the work that I do in terms of study of scripture or of words of the wise, I think all of these things have helped. And as they're brought into your life, as you live it day to day in the business world, in the family world, things just do begin to settle and change. And very often it's not a massive change that's needed. You know, it's just a little change. And so the level of contentment is definitely much greater than it was when I was, you know, 25. And I don't think it's just the gray, I don't think it's just the gray hair. I think there has been something happened. I might have no hair at all without those supports, really. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, not at all. Thank you. Enjoyed the evening. Great. great. Thank you. Yes, one a lady here. Hello. Just to say, we've only done, a few of us here, one term of philosophy class. Right, okay. But all of us have said we've noticed a change in our life. Oh, excellent. From coming to the classes, every one of us. Very good. Oh, fantastic. Your tutor and the material is doing great work. Very good. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good. She's great. She's great. Good. I think contentment is great. It can lead to complacency. I think let's try it and see, rather than not do it because of being afraid of what it might do. 
there are these ideas around about, I think, all of the virtues, just like there are ideas about being virtuous. I mean, you know, who wants to be a goody-goody? But let's see if that's the one, you know, that where rings a bell for you. Observe the discontent, and if that can be identified, what's the discontent about? Have a look at it. Have a look at it. I would move the bit of fear altogether. Begin. Just begin. That's the key, is just to make those steps in overcoming fear. That's lovely. I mean, there's two people with one each. We'll meet this time next year. <laughs> Thank you. You were saying there that the list of maybe taking uh, one and concentrating on it, placed in where you'd encounter it. Well, just something to remind you, yeah. It just struck me, this is all about remembrance then, that we know this. These qualities are part of us. We, we do know them all. Yes, we do. We're all practicing something every moment of the day, aren't we? I mean, we're going about whatever we go about in our daily lives, and there is an emotional quality and there's an attention. And these are present in everything we're doing. We practice something every moment of our day, and it is a question of what are we practicing? You know, is it discontent? Are we being mean or fearful? Or, or is it the other? Are we going about it in a cheerful, fearless, contented, harmonious manner? So we go about everything. We've come here in a cheerful manner or, a, you know, with some attitude almost. There's an attitude with everything we do. We wake up with one in the morning. Oh, it's raining again. <laughs> Sounds delightful, doesn't it? <laughs> so we do have these attitudes, and they're there every day, all day. So it is a question of remembering, very much. But then also, it's a choice as well. Exactly. We're making a choice. Yes. So we do need to see in ourselves the effect of what we're practicing. We don't realize you do have a choice, but I have a choice how am I going to view it. Exactly. So weather conditions shouldn't dictate the way I feel. I feel, no. It's just rain. It's just rain, yeah. Again. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get out of it sometimes, isn't it? But this is exactly right. Much of the attitudinal and the way we go about things, which is actually forming what happens to us. Much of this attitude and the way we go about things is sort of in the dark. We're not that conscious of it. And yet it is forming what meets us, what we meet. So we do need this element of inquiry as to what is going on here. I find myself that I try and work life through in between both. 
in between the virtues and the vices. You're too angry. Yes. There's not a complete absence of it. Yes. And never is. I'm reasonably content most of the time. And I just wonder, are we all sort of living for that middle line of, you know, just in between? Not 100% virtuous, not go all the way back down to a vice. And whatever you do, don't rock the boat. Yeah. <laughs> the road Yes. I mean, the teachers of mankind, our teachers, if you like, set the virtues before us as the godly qualities of man. So that's undoubtedly the aim. Because through those we may realize what we really are. Down the middle road, you won't harm anybody, that's for sure. You're playing safe, aren't you? You're not stretching. You're not stretching. No, you're not stretching. Are you shining? Just enough. <laughs> enough for what? For that sort of general satisfaction of life. For that general level of satisfaction, yeah. yes. I think, and I think most of us work that mid-road. No, I'm not going to go out on the tear every night, no. once a week. I'm not going to display anger in my place of work, but I will certainly display a bit at home. Yes. So it's this looking, isn't it? It's this witnessing of my own behavior. While you're happy with getting by at work, you know, biting your tongue, and then you come home and you kick the cat and you give out to the wife, you know, while you're happy with that, then, as you say, there's middle of the road. But in a way, when you wake up to your own idiosyncratic behavior and say to yourself, well, when am I going to be the same wherever I go? Now you have a problem. When am I going to be true to myself wherever I am? And not influenced by fear of my workplace in case I lose an order if I kick the cat in someone else's house, and perhaps lack of respect when I'm at home for those who are in fact nearest and dearest to me. You know, not an unusual scenario, this middle of the road that you describe. But then when am I going to be true to myself? It's that virtue of their constancy. Very good. When am I going to take on this constancy? So it's this encouragement to inquire, to observe, examine what's happening. I think the list is very useful to have this available. But this constancy is a virtue. Yeah, very good. Without the word, it wouldn't occur to us. I'm constantly annoyed at home and I'm constantly okay at work. <laughs> Oh, very good. <laughs> True awareness that we need to get to, is, which is beyond the mind, beyond the thinking mind, and understanding, because with each of these, even if you try to them your best, they live in, they're part of the dualistic world, and so no matter where you have one of them, you'll have its opposite, like, you know? And surely it's awareness that we need to get to. Good point. We definitely need to be aware of them, 
I mean, this is what we need to be aware of, isn't it? Isn't it the identification with mind and through awareness and understanding that we can actually get beyond this dualistic world like and to look at the world just what Shakespeare said, there's no good or bad where thinking makes it so like you know, so that if you look at the world through understanding and awareness, there is no good and bad and there is no fearlessness or fearful. Everything is just as it is. And isn't that awareness that we need to get to? It is. And the question is how are we going to get there? This is in the world of action. We're dealing with the world of action while we're talking of virtue and vice, very much so. That is all observed. It is seen. Virtues, if you like, are in the world of improving our action, of doing a good action as against a mediocre or a bad action. So we are dealing with the world of action, no question about it. And do we not observe it? I think that's exactly right. We do need to refine our observation of the active world. Because it's in this world that our engagement is. And the question is how to free ourselves of this engagement. And the suggestion is that by acting virtuously, that will assist in freeing us from the action itself. Just like that very simple example of telling a lie or of letting the car in in front of you. If you tell a lie, you've got to remember who you told it to. That gets complicated. You think about it afterwards, you think about it again before you meet the person. You've got to remember the scenario. So you become more engrossed, more drawn in to this world of action and interaction than is naturally needed. The aim is freedom, not greater bondage. And the suggestion is that some of these actions in the light of virtue will tend to free the being, free the mind and the heart of its concerns about the world and allow it to be free and happy. So you're right. We are concerned about observation. Virtues are in the world of activity. How am I going to interact with you? Am I going to be honest or dishonest? I think our experience is that the more honest we can be, the freer we are. And that's the aim of considering the virtues, is to free us from the unnatural and unnecessary involvement in the world, which tends to increase when we are not totally measured. When we overdo things, we wake up with a headache <laughs> the following day. You can't but remember what happened the night before. So we tend to get held in the world longer than necessary. Whereas the virtuous behavior tends to free us from that and leave you move freely the next time. Does that help? Thank you. Well, I would say that being virtuous is the purpose of human existence in order to make us whole and complete beings. Very good. Yes. Yes, indeed. And 
the question then is for us to see, are we complete? If not, if there are areas where there's incompleteness and we're aware of it, like a sore tooth, like a pain, like a misery, what is causing that and can I address it in some way? Is there something there to be addressed in order to make this appreciation of the creation greater? Can this freedom be increased? Can the happiness be increased? And how can that be done? So that's right. I mean, that is our purpose here. Very much so. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, your example with the car, <laughs> you know, somebody trying to get out of a side road, and you will feel better, you know, having left him or her out. But then you find out that that person has actually slipped you know, off the main road earlier on, gone up to an estate or something like that, and now is taking advantage of people with virtues. So you still feel good about it. Very true. Once that thinking comes in, you're ruined, aren't you? <laughs> Isn't that right? Once you go with that in your mind, if it's there in its simplicity, it's delightful. Once you go with that, look, he's another one of these songs, you know. Once you go with that, you tend not to let him in, really, unless you just come back to the simplicity again. It is, it's challenging. Because you, you automatically judge them as taking advantage of us. And that's an interesting situation, isn't it? This virtue of patience is a, is a, <laughs> is a very challenging one. But where do you pull the plug and when? Endurance, then, is a very good one. Yeah, what strikes you particularly about endurance? Well, one must endure to mature. That's correct. Yes. And I think everybody knows that. But then sometimes people give up. But you're not to give up. You have to keep on. That was my philosophy of life. I've endured many things with the help from above. And during the, the most difficult times, uh, I felt matured and supported. It's life. Often the more difficult times really can be the, as they say, character-building moments. Isn't that right? So anyone else with one of these ringing as a, as a very familiar or as a need? Jerry, good uh, evening. I've just been reading a thing from Shakespeare. I think Hamlet said to his mother, assume a virtue if you have it not. Does that mean if you feel that you're not courageous, that you assume the virtue? But how can you assume? How can that help? Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? Assume a virtue if you have it not. And what do we take? We're taking courage. Yeah, courage, yeah. And what's the opposite of courage? Is it fearful? Fearful. Or? fearful. Fearless. Fearless, fearful. So let's say you're afraid to do something and you remember how to overcome fear is, is to be courageous, to pick up the courage and overcome this, step over this fear. But I'm not a courageous person. Oh, the battle goes on. But perhaps if I, for a moment, pretend I'm courageous, I'll overcome it. And why not? So for a moment, be a bigger man, 
and overcome that fear. And what happens when you've done that? You are a bigger man. You've actually overcome, you've stepped over the fear or whatever was holding you back. And to that extent, you have experienced overcoming fear and being more courageous. So although you believe you haven't got it, you've done it. It's fantastic. So assume it, even if you haven't got it. It's good advice. Sir? My experience with fear is that it's always been magnified in the mind. Yes, it's much bigger until you begin. And if you can just begin somewhere, it gets smaller and smaller, doesn't it? When you can face down a fear, it will get smaller and smaller. So, when you get that letter in the post from the tax man, you can, <laughs> as you face it down, it can get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's a very good point to have the courage to overcome fear, assume a virtue if you have it not. Shakespeare, a great teacher. Great teacher. Yes, anything else from the list of interest? Yes. Just that they're often linked together as well, I find, that like that. We just say if there's an absence of anger, it's much easier to have forgiveness, isn't it? Whereas if you're angry, it's very hard to forgive. There is a linkage. Yes, there is. And I think it's possible also to say if any one of these were sort of really in the system, it influences the lot. So that's good, because while we've got quite a list here, the implication, you don't really have to perfect them all. What if you simply practice forgiveness in every situation? Possibility is you'd be humble. We can go through the list. Ability to endure. Harmless, generous, patient, just from one. That's why I really am interested in the one that rings a bell for you. Because needless to say, it's the one that's, what does a bell do? It's calling you. It's the one that's calling you to work. That's the one to work with find out what it really means. How did Shakespeare use that word? What does he really mean by endurance or constancy or patience? What sort of situations am I patient and what sort? Well, that's the end of my tether. How does that happen? How do you reach the end of your tether? Inquire into it and work with it. So it really is interesting which one rings a bell for you. So any more bell ringing? <laughs> a certain amount of deceit. A certain amount of deceit. You know, very subtle, like you wouldn't reveal it to everybody. Yeah, well, there you are. So, so you will know, only you will know. But how do you work with that? You know every time it arises, you see it coming up in your own system. And so you need to address it as it arises. Yeah. 
And that's the simple way to work with it. I mean, on the assumption that you would prefer to be honest. This is the beautiful freedom for man. You can choose. But you'll find that deceitful action has that sense of lingering, holding you, darkening you, you could say. While you could say being straightforward, being honest, lightens you, frees you. So that choice is yours. But you think yourself as being honest. Yes, this is this layer, isn't it? I'm an honest man, but yet I find myself being deceitful. Mm -hmm. This is what Socrates has said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So it's for you and I to examine, to inquire, where is this conundrum, where is this dichotomy coming from in me? I think I'm an honest man, I'm a decent guy, I'm straightforward, and yet I know, in fact I know, in certain situations I'm deceitful. Of course, Paul said that too in the scriptures, why do I do the things that I want to do the very opposite? You know? Yeah, well, Paul's gone. Yeah. There's only We're you good. and me now. <laughs> so you see, it's only us. It is down to us to see, as the man said, observation is the key. We've got to observe our behavior and see what sort of circumstances lead us into this. And is that good? How can we change that? Yeah, how can we change it? Well, that you'll have to find. You'll have to first see what leads you in. And then Mr. Gordon's here to help you if you need a question. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But it is true, we have to see. You know, and, and by the time we've done it a number of times, we'll get the hang of it. You know, it's a bit like anger arising in the system. You know, you realize you've lost it. You're just totally angry. I'm possessed by this, and I'm totally angry over this situation. You realize you've just lost it, and then you realize, oh, that's anger. So it takes a little while to actually discover that you're lost in anger. Then you begin to gradually see what's giving rise to this anger. And then you may begin to see a little bit just before it happens, just before you get that kick in the solar plex that just fires you up, you begin to see that you actually don't have to go there. You don't have to make that stance. And you can let the anger fall away. So the observation is the key to seeing what's happening. Yeah. Anybody else with anything on the list? Yes, sir. Great, thanks. The whole thing with patience challenges me. Sometimes with the people that are closest to you, and most importantly, you can actually be impatient, and people that have less significant in yeah. life, you loads of patience. Yes. So what is it? What is it about my children that should know better? <laughs> Isn't it strange? But my kids really should know better than that. Shouldn't they? It's a lot to do with it, hasn't it? We do think our children should... The children next door, you'd be patient as could be. But my children is a big challenge, and they should really know better and shouldn't do it. So it is strange how we assume that they know what we want and what we don't want, 
isn't it? It's very sort of conceited on our part. So it is very challenging. And so we should examine how we treat our nearest and dearest and what assumptions we have on the behavior we have with them, particularly if it's different than how we deal with everybody else. Because obviously there's a different format working. There are assumptions being made here, and I always assume they should know better. I mean, I haven't told the kids next door how to behave, but I've told you, so you should know. (laughs) So we do make big assumptions and don't really examine them very often. But in a way, why don't we treat our own family the way we would anyone else? Why are we home devils and street angels? Haven't we give out to our kids for doing that? So it's interesting. So it's good to inquire in our behavior. See the dichotomies and inquire. Sir? Most of your words for virtues, you know, or positive words, with the exception of maybe one or two, like we just say, anger, like the virtue there, is absence of anger. But can you describe a virtue by just the absence of a vice, if you like, or is there? Right, right. Angerless, angerless, isn't it? No. Can anyone help me there with that? To be calm is good, isn't it? To be... Steady. This is interesting one, contentment. Yeah, how do you find that one? That's against a little bit of discontent. How do you find that? There's often an underlying discontent, isn't there, in the system? Just a little vibration that doesn't necessarily come to the surface, but just sort of works away there, nudging, niggling, Maybe it comes at particular times of the day. And the other one is contentment, simply to be content. Yeah, interesting. Anything else? I just think it's interesting that the list on the right gives what you might call a new definition for sin, in that all of them are a regard for yourself, whereas the list on the left cultivates the opposite of the other one. Yes. Yes. You were saying earlier that there may not be such a thing as bad. It would seem that regard for yourself is a no-no. Is a... A no-no. A no-no. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much for that. I think in terms of happiness, in terms of, of our happiness... It is in, in opening out to others. I think this concern about myself isn't great in terms of lasting happiness. It may bring you short-term gain or some form of joy in the short term, but it, it's not a recipe for life. And I think the recipe for life is found in the happiness of others, really, and opening out to that. So it's quite stark when you speak of it like that. There's really no contest.
if one side is sin and the other side is, is joy. But as I say, we are complex. We were made up of a complex situation. And I think, is it not so? There's nothing here that's alien to us on either side of the sheet. We recognize all of the vices and we recognize the virtues. So somehow they're all observed. If you like, we know them all. They may be a bit in the dark, but we know them all. So this observation that you spoke of, sir, is very interesting because is it not so that we can actually observe that entire range of qualities in our behavior? And the choice is, how does one act? Because the observation is free of that action. Yes. But the act itself has a power to bind you or free you. And the interest is in freedom. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much, sir. Anything else? Have you all got one then to work on? You have one? <laughs> oh, nearly got you to say something there. <laughs> Oh, nearly got you. (laughs) Very good. So you do all have one. Yeah? Good. Did you pick one? (laughs) Well, no. In fairness, I mean, it's a good question. The last time I was at this, I was still with the contentment one. And I think I'm still there, really. I find very often I get itchy, sort of discontentment as a type of itchiness around seven o'clock in the evening. Don't know what it is, haven't discovered it. If when I find it, I'll tell you. So how do you content yourself then? Yeah, it's a good question. You just need to see, I think, what it is that's niggling. Is there actually something that needs to be done? Or, I'm not sure, you see. That's the nature, isn't it, of a bit of discontent. That I don't know what it is, but I just know I'm not 100%. If you're aware of it, it's a great start. And then just keep at it, really. Watch it. And one thing I have noticed is another glass of wine doesn't help. (laughs) Because you take your eye off the ball then, don't you? It gets you through that night, that's no problem. But you don't actually get to the bottom of it. And it may be that you don't see what's there. It may just simply through inquiring into it releases it. As with fear. As you look into it, it's gone. It could just be that. That there isn't actually some great, you know, discovery to be made, but just inquiring into the discontent in some way helps it dissolve. But uh, Shakespeare said, dost thou think 
the art so virtue was there be no more cakes and ale was he talking about people preaching to other people about virtue should be practicing it rather than preaching it sounds like it you can be such a goody goody this is what i was saying some of the erroneous ideas really about being virtuous that there be no more cakes and ale i mean nobody wants that everybody come on <laughs> Let's have moderation in moderation, shall we? <laughs> yeah, that's dead right. And let's just practice it ourselves and not preach it. Very good. But another thing, I think if we're born pure, perfect and complete. We are virtuous by nature, really. Somewhere along the way, we lost it. It's probably to go back and try and find ourselves. It is to find our true self, yes. And I think this is a sort of a path. I think each of these virtues, we can have them as a cornerstone or as a guidance, a, a signpost to finding ourselves. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. And we just need to take that on. Yeah. Is there any particular one strikes you? Contentment, I think, really um, comes down to the lot, really. If you're content... I think you'll be able to sort the rest out. Yes. Yes, very good. Because the contentment is kind of probably the same as disease, not at ease. Really. Yes, not at and ease. There's plenty of dis-ease around, and it's not a physical thing or anything like but it's just you're not at ease. If you're at ease... Yes, then you're yourself. I mean, it's interestingly simple, isn't it? It's, it's really quite simple when it's put like that. No, good. Yes, thank you very much. Anything else? What strikes you? Responsible for other people. Well, yes, then you get anxious, do you? Yeah, a little bit. Well, that's worth looking at. I mean, is the anxiety going to help? Not really. So it may be worth looking at what causes that anxiety in the caring of one's nearest and dearest. And see, is it valid? Is it really real? <laughs> no, very good. That's a way forward, isn't it? Because family is for happiness. Family is for fulfillment of life. Not for creating misery which concern and worry and anxiety all lead towards. So this little phrase of Socrates, to examine our life, is an interesting one. Because it's often in those nearest and dearest scenarios where the greatest dichotomy arises and the greatest opportunity for discovering what's causing it and the validity of that or not. So that's a terrific you know, observation of one's own behavior to highlight and see what's the truth of the situation, what's really there. Yeah. No, very good. Excellent. It's a big question mark. You know, having a family is delightful. But I mean, you know, I'm worried all day long about them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. So it's something to work on. <laughs> Do you think that there's a link between courage and contentment? 
I think that if you have the courage to do what's right, you will find contentment. Very good. Yes, indeed. Excellent. It's quite a battleground, isn't it, really? And we love a fight. So it's quite a battleground overcoming the fears, to have the courage to carry out whatever is needed. And from that, naturally, contentment arises. Yes, very good. You know, one thing I worry about this is that we can kind of readapt things so much that we can take ourselves away from our our decision on things and our reality with things. Yeah. And I think that could become dangerous. Okay. Do you still know what I'm saying? I do. Something could be so fragmented in all sorts of ways that to be capable of confusing the individual in the middle of it. Yes. And that could be a very confusing state for somebody who is wanting to make advance. Yes. There must be a growth in the knowledge of what you are. With this inquiry, the growth in the understanding of what in fact I am grows naturally. So as the confusions and the incongruity and the mix-up in the mental and emotional realm is cleansed, there is a growing understanding in the being of what I truly am. So that is a very important part of it, of the whole process of the cleansing and the practicing of the virtues. That naturally arises. And you mustn't be afraid of that. Do you know, that is a very, a very natural developmental process. And it may be unknown, but it's very important to overstep the fear of that unknown and allow that growth to take place. Are we happy to, to leave it there this evening? Well, thank you very much. Very enjoyable. <laughs>